Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. January 29th, episode 102, Chewing the Fat. Hi everyone, this is Kevin England. Welcome back one more time to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. It's a flurry style day here in New Jersey. Saw a little snow flurries yesterday and uh, it's cool but not cold. It's been one of those crazy Januaries where it's been relatively warm. We've had a couple days where I've had to put on a jacket, meaning a full winter jacket to go to work, but for the most part I've been wearing fleeces and so on and I've seen a good number of flyable days for the bees. But all it means to me is I am so waiting for spring. I am looking forward to it. We're to the end of January, and spring is right around the corner. I have a lot to cover with you in this episode. Let me go through what we have on the agenda. Killing mites with sound. A preview of an idea for a similar hive to the flow hive called the duo hive. Interview clear covers. And a follow-up to the FLIR endoscope segment we recorded just a bit ago with some detail on practical use. And a couple odds and ends to go through the state meeting and and a couple other roundtable topics. But first, I should say that we called this chewing the fat, but we should call it chewing the bee fat with Bob because... I am very happy to have Bob Kloss back with us one more time for an episode. Great to be here, Kevin. Yeah, you know, you've been away far too long, Bob. Uh, you're you're working in the shadows in the background, but uh, I'm really happy to have you back, and we're going to have fun today. Yeah, well, you know, I have a lot of time on my hands now. Yes, I know. I go to work schlepping every day for the pharmaceutical world, and... You have retired. I have. You have a little spring in your step. <laughs> I see you. <laughs> yeah. I, I really don't miss those 4.30 a.m. wake-up calls. No, I'm sure you don't. So, Bob, that means you have more time to work with your bees and get to, to look at it. And you know the tradition. We have to start with the local hive report, so I'm going to give you the honor. How's it going? Okay, local hive report. So, as you said, Kevin, it's really been pretty mild winter, and now that I have been home every day, on those nice days when we hit 45, 50, maybe even 55 degrees, uh, I can go out and check my hives. So, it's really, they've been flying like crazy on those warm days. Um, At the mentoring hives, we have seven hives up there going into winter, including the one top bar. And uh, last time I was up there, it looks like we lost one. I didn't really do an autopsy on it yet, but it was heavy with honey. It had a full box of honey on the top. So one of the other hives up there was pretty light, so I just took the top box off and and put it on the one that needed a little bit more. So uh, one out of seven, that's not bad. I'll take that if it it holds for another month or so. Um, In my yard at home, I have four top bars. I've got uh, seven langs, 
and I've got five nukes, double nukes, five over fives. So, so far, I've lost two Langstroth hives. One of them I knew going in I was going to lose because it got robbed out late in the fall, late November. I'm not sure if it was just weak or whether it just got targeted, but, uh, but I could see this. I have this one on a, on a scale. So I saw a drop of about 10 pounds in a day or so and knew right away something was going on. So I got out there and sure enough, it was being robbed out. Um, the other one that died, the other Lang that died also is being robbed out. I'm not sure why it died. It went in, it was pretty healthy. It's a three deep, had plenty of honey, almost two full boxes of honey. So uh, I'm curious to open that one up when we get a little bit further into the spring and see uh, what got it, whether it was mites or whether, I don't think they starved to death. And I thought they had a pretty good cluster going into winter. So it would be interesting to see what, what went on with that one. And uh, and so far, I lost one nuke, one out of five. So overall, I lost three colonies out of the 16 that I have, uh, which is not bad, a little under 20%. If it holds for another month, as, as you know, we talked about this uh, last night at the meeting. Yeah. We make it through the next couple of weeks. There's no reason you should lose hives after that. It's just a question of making sure they've got enough food until the uh, the flow hits and the pollen pollen starts popping. So uh, I feel pretty good about it. You know, 16, lost three, one out of seven at the uh, mentoring yard. Not a bad winter. No, it's pretty good. You think anything, um, you think the weather attributes to that, that it's been a warmer one? We've known in past years when we've had warmer winters, we, we tend to have better success rates on survival. Yeah, um, I think that's true. Uh, that's been my experience anyway. Um, the one thing, though, you know I've got a couple of different hives that are on scales now, and I've been monitoring one of the hives for, this is going into the third season now, the third winter. And, uh, you know, one winter it was really, really cold. The next winter, so we think that was 2014, 2015, it was pretty mild. And then last year it was pretty mild again. And every year they consume about the same amount of stores. Uh, lose about a pound to a pound and a half a week for about 20 weeks, 30 weeks, 30 pounds total. And start really losing weight when they start building up the first week in March. So I, I don't think it makes a difference in the amount of stores that they eat, but it probably does affect overall survival rate. Yeah. You know, there was a topic last night at the meeting people kept asking, and since you mentioned it, if you have a dead out, what should you do? And we were telling folks, um, their, their curiosity was, why does their hive dive? And I thought you gave a really good answer to that, which was go to that uh, hive forensics or hive, um, uh, what's the term I'm looking for from Honeybee Suite? So an aut autopsy. autopsy, yeah. And actually, actually, Kevin, I had to correct. I should correct myself. I went in and looked today. There, there is a pretty decent how to autopsy a hive on Honeybee Suite, but the one I was really talking about is on the site called Beverly Bees. Oh yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. So I got them confused, but uh, I, I saw that today. So it really goes through in detail. So I think the I think Beverly Bees. She does a little bit better job in terms of all the possibilities of why your hive died. 
Yeah, both of those are available on Google, and they're amazing sites, both of them in their own right. So my local hive report, Bob, as you know, because you were here last Sunday and we went through the hives, um, the two large hives that I have on my property look good. The nukes were questionable. The nuke condo, uh, you had given me two hives to hold over from the from the fairs, they were not the greatest going in, and they were single nukes. I had one single nuke that was not very good, but we'll see. And uh, the other one was mediocre. I thought it would be okay. All four of them look like they're gone. Um, alongside of those in the stack were four double-deep nukes. I know the two on the outside are good. I know the one from the right, second in. I think is still there. The third one, I'm not sure, but when we did FLIR reviews of them, the three hives on the right, including the one I'm questionable about, did show some heat patterns, but uh, that was a week or so ago, and I, I'm not sure what it is. And, you know, we were talking about whether it's the endoscope or the FLIR cameras, whether we could see those. The entrances for those have um, entrance guards, and the hole's not big enough for me to get the endo camera in. And because I have them wrapped in insulation, I can't see whether or not we could pick up a heat signature. So the only way I'm going to get them is to open them. And at this point, open them's not going to tell me anything other than they're alive or dead. I know they got plenty of food, so I'm just going to leave them be. I thought about uh, the possibility of tearing the stack apart and verifying that they were alive and putting them back together and rewrapping them. Uh, I, I think maybe sometime this week or next weekend I'll try that activity. Yeah, if we get a warm day, it might be might be worthwhile. The way I, I remember it, Kevin, I think your five over fives all looked like they were doing pretty well. It's really hard to, uh, to overwinter those five-frame nukes, even by bundling them together. And as you said, they weren't the greatest going into the winter, but it's always worth a try. I've pulled a few five-frame nukes through the winter, uh, but you're not going to have, you know, 100% success every year with those. Yeah, you and I had a short conversation, and uh, you know what? I want to say something. We're recording this with a different technology this week, not the normal recording tool that I use, and I'm not sure what the audio looks like. I can see from mine it looks like it's over-modulated, so... Uh, we're going to keep going because I can't tell how good the quality is. But, folks, if the video, sorry, the audio doesn't sound right, well, we'll see if we could do something in post. But hang in there and we'll we'll record it the uh, traditional way later. Um, Bob, you and I were talking, I think, after uh, a meeting last time or one of our exec meetings about, I know it was the other night when, when I was driving home and you and I spoke on the phone in preparation for the beekeeping meeting is it the right thing to have two nuke boxes over when you only have one box full of bees and you assured me that michael palmer and you and others are doing that because i was questioning how much space they had to keep warm yeah um i i think it's more difficult if you can if you can do a five over five or a four over four i think you've got a, a better shot um you know, it's a matter of numbers. You know that too. It's the cluster's got to be big enough to be able to stay warm, and even if you're putting them together and they're sharing heat, 
you still need to have that core number of bees to generate enough heat to keep them alive and allow them to move around to where the food is. Yeah, so taking the score, um, the two hives at the house, good. Of the eight nukes, four of them are gone. Over the farm, everything's alive. You and I went over there and went through each of those hives, and all four of them are good. In fact, the the all-medium hive looks really strong, so I'm pretty confident we'll make it through to spring for that. So maybe not as good as your numbers, but still pretty decent and enough to get into spring and, and make splits and get a, get those boxes in the garage out of the garage and get bees in them. Yeah, we're almost there. A couple more weeks we can declare victory, but not quite yet. Yeah, so let's go ahead and roll into our first topic. Segment number one is killing mites with sound. I passed you over um, in the Indiegogo project for something coming out of Germany where they created this box that's tied to a battery that you put over a hive and it's zapping the hive with sound which is affecting the mites but does no damage to the bees yeah really really interesting i think i told you that i had seen this before and i just kind of blew blew by it thinking that it had to be snake oil um but you pointed me back to it again and and reading it it's an interesting concept uh you know, basically saying that at the right frequency, you can, I guess, annoy the mites enough that they drop off or they die um, and has no effect on the bees. So pretty interesting that bees are only sensitive at certain frequencies because I've always thought they were pretty perceptive of uh, just about everything that goes on in the hive, particularly vibrations and, and sound and things. But I guess when you get into those ultra high frequencies, maybe the bees can't heat it, can't hear it. So Bob, let's talk this over. I wanted to uh, give a couple URLs in case anybody that's listening to this can surf the web. They can follow along. There's a website, indiegogo.com, which is a site where you can try to find funding for your efforts on the Indigo indiegogo website go to projects slash varroa dash killer dash sound and you'll see the indiegogo project for this product you can also go to facebook.com slash varroa sound all one word and there you can follow along uh, some of the notes i will warn everybody that this is in german but there's English translations or a translation button, or when you watch the videos, there's subtitles in English. So there's enough information there that you can follow along. And Bob, you alluded to the uh, frequency piece. The way they did this, it, it appears, is they put bees in a showcase, is what they called it, and try different frequencies and observe the behaviors of what happened of bees and mites. And mites act on frequencies from 12,000 to 17,000 hertz. And it's in this range that they found that they could change the behavior of the bees. Now, the question is, what happens to the bees at that uh, frequency? They say that they found between 2,000 and 8,000 hertz in their test. The bees get restless. 
But when they change the hertz up to 10,000, there's no reaction whatsoever in the bees or the brood itself. So it seems they found, Bob, that sweet spot where they can target the mite, but no problem with the bees. The, the other thing that's interesting about it, Kevin, is I think we're talking about it. Those frequencies have a little bit of a background in, in noise and sound. I think there are sensitive individuals that can hear up there around 10,000 hertz. It's kind of at the upper limit of what humans hear. So interesting whether there would be people that are sensitive enough that they might have to protect themselves if they use this device. There was uh, something in there that said that this sound could be picked up by some people. Now, I know, you know, my kids play that trick that they do in school where somebody plays a sound and the teachers can't hear it, but every student knows what's going on. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, I know that, again, I'm not a noise expert by any means, but I know that um, for noise-induced hearing loss, the first loss occurs at 8,000 hertz, and then it spreads up and down. But at 8,000 hertz, you're, you're um, right around the voice frequencies. So I'm sure that people can hear higher than that. What were the... Uh, what were the frequencies that they were talking about? Well, they're saying the ideal frequency range to harm the varroa mites is 14,000 to 15,000 hertz with 90 decibels. Okay, that's that's pretty high. I think that's out of the human range for the most part, but I, I'm, I couldn't, I'm not sure of that. I think you have it right, though. I do recall somewhere in there it's saying that some humans can hear this. Yeah, I think they were talking about children, too. Right, maybe it was children that have... They have better hearing than we do as we right. lose hearing as we get older. So it says in that range, 14,000 to 15,000, the varroa mites are extremely disturbed in food consumption. And the results there, that adult mites die within 10 to 20 days. The acoustic noise works in the brood too. The juveniles, meaning young mites, are dying in the, breed, in the breeding cell within one day. Right, so this is awesome. They're getting the adults, but they're getting the juveniles in the cells with this. It's interesting. So they're saying that they don't eat; it causes them not to eat. That's what it sounds like, right? That's what it sounds like. It has something to do with affecting their behavior for food. Huh? That's so twenty-five days of zapping them with this sound, the colony's healthy. Kills. Kills the mites. So let's talk about that. You and I looked at this before we came on air here. When we were looking at it, there was a study paper that somebody did, and it said they started a study on 10-28-16, and between 10-28 and 11-1, they dropped eight mites, meaning that's what they found on the bottom board when they counted. Between 11-1 and 11-6, they had 14 mites. 11-6, 11-12, 11-12, 11-12, 11, 12 to 11, 18, 42, 11, 18 to 11, 24, 68 mites. And then 11, 24 to 12, 1, where they stopped the study, it was four more mites. And we were trying to do the math about how many mites would be in a colony, normal size, and whether that was a good amount of mites killed to have an impact to the colony. And we gave up on the math. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think we struggle with that uh, a little bit. 
But we did see when we went out to the Facebook page that they were claiming somewhere between 80 to 90% effective. So if in fact they're getting 80% kill or even you know 90% or even 80% kill, you know, that's comparable to chemical treatments. So uh, it sounds pretty good to me. I look at it this way too, right? The one conversation we were having over a lot of the might kill discussion that we always have is you don't want to kill them all. You want to kill just enough that the bees could live with them so that the bees can develop some sort of resistance over time, right? And this to me seems to hit a, if that's true, hit some sort of sweet spot that it does leave some of the, the mites alive that the bees have to learn to deal with and develop tolerance to. Interesting. I wonder if the uh, the mites could develop tolerance to the those high frequencies. Because we know that we have problems with all of our chemical treatments. After a few years, the bees become resistant. I wonder if uh, if the same thing would happen with noise. You wouldn't think so. Yeah, and you know, it harkens back to the theories about cell phone towers and such zapping the bees. I don't know if people are going to be squeamish about this idea, but the fact of the matter is you could explore a whole different range. I was talking to you uh, also about that thermal gadget, which I'll cover in a future episode, that cooks the mites but not the bees, right? So there's so many different areas of trying to find the attack vector that doesn't impact the bees doesn't have a negative impact to humans and finds that spot that can get a parasite on a buck. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think you raise a good point, Kevin, right? They've said in this study that those frequencies don't affect the bees. Well, we know there's no acute effect, so it doesn't affect them immediately. But is there some sort of a, not a sublethal, but a, a less, a more subtle effect that somehow is uh, debilitating to the bees over time. I don't know. be interesting. Well, the selling points to this thing are they're talking about uh, comparisons against oxalic acid, which acids are informic acid and some of the other things. They're saying they're harmful to the bees because bees are being exposed to that. It's high-frequency so it's harmless to the bees based on their research. It's 100% biological and one of the things about this is you can use it all year round, and you know it's important that there are certain times when um, all the bees are there and there's not a lot of brood. But I think that doesn't matter on this one because one of the key things about any Varroa mite treatments is can you get the mites in the cells? Yeah. I mean, any any treatment that gets the mites in the cells, it's a huge, huge advantage um, over other treatments that only get the phoretic mites. So it looks like the sale price of this thing is going to be $92 U.S. plus whatever the shipping is. And pretty reasonable. I think that's reasonable. I, I don't know. You know, some of the things we see, you treat a hive and you move on. You treat a hive and you move on. It looks like this one uses a battery similar to like a boat battery or something. And that has a box that sits over top of the hive and just sends the sound frequency down through the hive. And, you know, they're looking at 90% kill. I'm wondering if you could leave it on shorter durations and just zap the mites for a period of time and try not to kill that many. Yeah, just kind of keep them under control. Keep that, you know, that 
from them having that exponential growth late in the summer. Yeah, so whatever the case, pretty interesting device and um, like anything else, curious to see how it works in practice and I'm not sure if you want to buy a $90 device for every single one of your hives or if you could rotate it through the season. But, you know, Bob, you made a point earlier before we came on, uh, before we started the program, is if you have two hives out back and they're, they're all, the, all the world to you, then maybe this is a $200 investment that's worth it. Yeah, especially with what packages and nukes cost these days. Yep. One one replacement or lost hive that would pay for this. Yeah. And the productivity of a hive that was doing really well and you lose it and you don't get honey because you got to restart. So, yeah, that's a pretty interesting thing. I'm not sure if it has a commercial aspect, but maybe somewhere down the line they could make this thing less expensive and more functional that way. Yeah, you would think so, especially as they start mass producing it. All right, so let's move on to our next topic. Um, we'll call that one a segment. Let's go to roundtables because I, you and I had talked. We have a number of topics teed up. The first one is the duo hive. This is something that uh, we found. It's got to be brand new because the only place I could find it is on the the YouTube channel that the person who's creating it put up. It seems like it's in prototype mode. If you go to Duo Hive, D-U-O Hive, all one word, dot com, it says coming soon. And Bob, we looked at this earlier. It's a, well, maybe I shouldn't do this to the person, but <laughs> it has so much similarity that I can't help but draw the comparison. It looks like a machinist version metal prototype of a very similar concept to the flow hive. Yeah, how about an over-engineered flow frame? Uh, I don't know how you found this one, Kevin, because I'm always out there looking for things, but this is pretty interesting. Um, as you said, it has a lot of similarities to the, to the flow frame in that it's got a template inside and the bees fill it up with honey and they cap it. And then you take a tool and by shifting the, uh, this frame, and in this case, it's aluminum. Uh, ultimately, he said he wanted to make it out of stainless steel, which I think is really going to drive the price up. But anyway, he puts the tool in, and then by somehow manipulating these frames, it breaks the cells open, the honey flows down and into a jar very similar to the flow hive. The advantage to this particular system is that if you get a honey that is very viscous or one that even crystallizes so that you can't just have it flow out of the hive, you can actually take these templates, these aluminum templates, out of the hive, and then you could warm them up to reliquify the honey. You could even spin them in an extractor, I guess, if you, if you wanted to. He did say you could, yeah. Yeah. So his goal is to make this thing out of stainless steel. And let me see if I can do any justice to describing it. Again, uh, we'll provide notes or uh, links in the show notes, but you can go to youtube.com and search for the Duo Hive and you'll find the channel for it. There's four introductory videos where he shows his prototype, one of them in a hive with live bees. 
it's to describe it, it looks like a center box and has two frame layers that are about a third of an inch thick that fasten to the side of the center box. And the frame layers look like honeycomb. They resemble a filter mesh material is the best I could describe it. And it appears this metal comb, which you could see through, backs up to a plate that moves very similar to the flow hive when you turn uh, a key. And that tool makes the metal plate separate from the mesh. So the honey will flow in the gap between the back of the mesh and the metal plate that it backs up to. And it goes into a metal chamber that's down on the bottom that goes out to a port that goes through the outside of the hive and you collect the honey very similar to the flow hive. I just, uh, I just can't imagine what this thing is going to cost if he makes it out of stainless steel. I mean, aluminum is pretty light. Stainless is going to be heavier and it's going to be much more expensive. But hey, I give the guy credit. It's really pretty ingenious. He's obviously quite an engineer. He's one of these guys that, uh, he reminds me actually of my grandfather. My grandfather used to come up with all these wacky uh, ideas and uh, make all of these tools. And it's almost a little bit of a uh, Rube Goldberg, but uh, you got to give him credit. It's really engineered pretty well. Yeah, and, and we were watching the videos earlier. And uh, what's actually even more interesting is the Lazy Susan he had the hive on with the metal stand. <laughs> the way that he engineered the roof. And he cut a hole in it so you could open it up like the flow hive and see into it. And uh, you could just see that this guy is having a blast. He, he doesn't. Bobby was wearing a snow white suit with gloves that look like they've never been in a hive. Um, but... Oh, oh, and the, the meat thermometer. We can't forget about that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, he had a, a probe thermometer stuck in the hive. I, I mean, this guy oozes engineer, and what he built is really ingenious. It's really cool. You have to go take a look at it. I wonder how he got that honeycomb material that he's using. Yeah, I, I'm not sure where he got it. Uh, he probably, probably found it or, or maybe invented it for all I know. The other thing that was pretty funny is he had the, uh, I guess, like a screen bottom board, but instead of having the chloroplast that, that goes in, he was using, again, aluminum. He had an aluminum plate right. that slid right. in under the hive to control the amount of ventilation he wanted to uh, to provide. <laughs> Quite a guy, I'll tell you. Yeah, everything had machine screws, and he was using Allen keys to turn everything. And, uh, yeah, it, it was uh, definitely a machinist take on how to build a hive system. And it was it was really cool. I don't know how you mass produce that, but uh, I would I would like to have one of those out in my yard. And you know what? For guys like us that love gadgets, this is a great gadget. It really is. Yeah, so check that out on YouTube. Duo Hive is the name of the channel, and there's four introductory videos there. They're named. Make sure you watch each of the videos. They're excellent. So roundtable number two, another gadget. Since we're the gadget guys, uh, Bob, this one was neat. It's the interview cover, and it's a replacement for an inner cover that sits on top of a colony and has a really neat feature. Yeah, it's, uh, you can actually see through it. So when I first saw it, I thought that it had 
plexiglass, that it basically was an inner cover that was made of plexiglass that you could look through. Um, and I guess they do make them in plastic, but the ones that they really, I think, prefer are laminated glass. Um, interesting. You know, you talked about, we love gadgets, Kevin. How come we're not inventing these things? I know. We might, well, you're retired now. You've got time <laughs> to do this. <laughs> well, this one is, it's a little pricey, I guess, but first of all, it looks really well made. It's got room to put a, uh, a feeder so you can feed either liquid feed or and it looks like you also could feed some sort of pollen patties or pollen substitute uh, through there. Um, think about it. Just okay. So think about it. A glass, piece of glass on top of your hive. You could go in the winter, take the outer cover off, not lose any heat or not much heat. You could look down and see are there honey stores? Are the bees up there? How big is the cluster? It's pretty neat. I, I really, I think it's pretty cool. I would love to be able to look into the hive like that at any time without opening it up and worrying about being stung. I have this to offer, Bob. For as much money as we spent on our filler cameras, we could have put <laughs> these clear things across all of our eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? right? I'd like to have at least one. They're pretty cool. Yeah. So, so the concept is bees under glass. You can see these at beegoldhoney.com. Look for the interview inner covers. A 10-frame interview plexiglass inner cover is thirty dollars twenty nine ninety nine and if you buy the laminated glass one it's forty nine ninety nine and these do look like they're really well engineered and um it's a neat novel product i i've never seen one of these anywhere else and i think these folks are going to do really well with them and uh it's worth taking a look they're really cool they have great they have a great promotional video of a couple kids standing next to a hive opening and looking and they're not in jeopardy and you know, so that that is an important aspect of beekeeping is you want to live with the wonder of it, Bob, but you don't want to take the risk. And what a great way to show your relatives and your friends when you walk them out to the bee yard. Yeah, really great, great for kids. Uh, you know, they were really touting the laminated glass also because it actually has a little layer of air in between. And they were saying that you really don't get a lot of condensation on it because that would be something I'd be concerned with is in the winter having a lot of condensation. The other thing I was worried about when I first looked at it was that they would build burr comb and, you know, attach it up and you wouldn't be able to see anything because it would all be attached with burr comb. Um, but it looks like they've, you know, they've got the bee space just right. They get some occasional burr comb, but it didn't look like that really was a problem. And I guess if, if you got the bee space right, it probably wouldn't be a problem. So, uh, I just yeah, and they showed how to it. clean the glass if they do end up building. They they gave you instruction on how to take care of that. So, oh, the I other think thing, it's inevitable, right? Don't you that that eventually they're going to build some wax on those? Yeah, the other thing that was interesting, Kevin, is uh, they were talking about writing on the glass. So, using a marker on the glass to write your notes, whatever you see, um, and then being able to just wipe it off. And, and write again. Uh, interesting, he was saying that he writes in the color of the uh, the year it is for the queens. So if it's a uh. red year, he writes in red pen. If it's a white year, he writes in white pen so he can see as soon as he opens it up, 
whether he wrote it this year, last year, or whatever year. So uh, I kind of like that because, you know, I don't take a lot of notes. I don't keep a lot of uh, logs on my hives, and I should. I know I should. Um, but I think to be able to write on the hive just like that, that that's, that's really a pretty big advantage for me. Yeah, I've seen Charlie Ilsley take a Sharpie and write on his outer covers. He's got notes all over his hives. Yeah, Michael Palmer's big on that, too. He writes uh, on tape. You think he puts duct tape or any kind of tape, and he writes on it. Uh, he's got his own little shorthand. I could see a couple scenarios where you might find some challenges. If you had a feeder on, then you wouldn't be able to see the bees and, and things like that, right? So you have to think about some of your management stuff. I wonder what the jeopardy is if they glue that thing down and then you get your hive tool and start prying up on a corner. Do you have any possibility of breaking the glass? Yeah, I wonder. I'm sure they have a number of these in use and, and have worked through all of those things. Um so it's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, I, I think somewhere down the line, Bob, we're going to have to try one of these. Yeah, we'll put them on the mentoring hives and see how they go. Yeah. Okay, round table number two done. Let's go to number three. This one's a new podcast that came about. It's called Beehive Jive, podcast out of England. Uh, the description from the website TheBeehiveJive.com is, they're literally just getting started. This was their first episode. I found this just before we came on air here, Bob, and I listened to the first 25 minutes of it, and I really enjoyed um, the banter they had. I will say their first episode appears to need some tweaking production-wise because I had to crank the volume all the way up to get it going. They were talking about, very similar to us, they're in winter in uh, London, I think they said they were in um, South London, and they're just going to do what we're doing right now, just have a chat about bees and what's going on, and, and uh, I'm looking forward to that because I always was, was appreciative of people who were telling us stuff that was going on in London. It seems very akin to what we do here in the States. Yeah, well, it's interesting to see uh, how our beekeeping is alike and how, it, how it's different. So uh, if you've got a good source, I didn't really get an opportunity to take a look at this, so I, I can't really comment on the, uh, on the content, but I'll certainly give it a listen. Well, if you become a regular listener of Beekeeping Podcasts, you'll have us in New Jersey, you'll have uh, these guys in London, you'll have Kiwi Mana over in New Zealand, and uh, um, Parker and some of the others are recording in other places in the United States. So maybe we could get different time zones all the way across the globe and we'll be able to follow beekeeping everywhere. That'd be cool. Yeah. Well, you know me, I listen to all those podcasts, really enjoy them. Of course, I yes, know which me. one's the best, Kevin. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to leave that one alone. Goes without saying. I want to, uh, Go on to the next topic, because I think you and I are going to spend a little time discussing this one. In uh, the recent episode, we talked about the FLIR and endoscope cameras, and you and I went out last Sunday and, and shot three different yards, my two, and we went over to visit uh, Jim Schmall's yard and shot some pictures from him. And uh, you also had your photos that you took with your FLIR and 
And I put together a compilation video that we showed at last night's meeting about our endoscopes. And, and we've described the products already. So let's talk about what we learned in shooting some of the photos. And the presentation we put together last night was a series of shots from your hives and then mine and then Jim Schmalls. And uh, I wanted to give you the floor. Let's talk about your pictures and what you saw. Okay, well, this, this thing is just a lot of fun to start with. Um, and when you take, you take your initial shots and you see that cluster in there, some of the, some of the pictures are just um, they're really outstanding. You look at it and you can tell right away where the cluster is. And you can really tell how big the cluster is. So uh, those are pretty cool. Others, it's a little more subtle where maybe you can't see where the cluster is because maybe they're in the center of the hive. But if you look at the lower entrance or the upper entrance, you can see that there's hot air. There's some heat that's coming out of there. And that gives you a pretty good indication that there's bees inside and that they're alive. It's really something you can use in combination. We talked about the boroscope or the endoscope also. So between the two of these tools, I think uh, it's not always easy with the FLIR to make a, a definite judgment. One of the things we found was that the aluminum roofs reflect the infrared. And so sometimes you'll, it'll appear that the, you have sections of the roof that are warm, um, but they really aren't. I think it's just reflecting the, uh, the infrared. There, there was a uh, comment from Rick last night who has a Seek camera, not a FLIR. It's a different brand. And his hypothesis was sometimes the heat from our body is reflecting off the metal and coming back to the camera. Mm, yeah, that could be. Well, that was another thing that we found, and you pointed this out to me when we were shooting last week, is if you touch anything, you transfer some heat and, and it's going to show up on your FLIR camera. And I never would have thought of that, but makes a lot of sense, right? Your body's 98 degrees, and if you touch it immediately, it's going to heat it up, heat up the surface. So you have to be sure that when you're looking at your hives that you're not touching them. And, you know, that was the first thing that happened, right? We both went in and we, right. we touched them, and then we said, well, what's that? Oh, that's your handprint. So something yeah. else to avoid. One of the cool shots was, uh, you know that I put together these nuke condos for the winter. And by a nuke condo, what I mean is I take my five over five nukes and I push them all together, strap them together, and then insulate the sides, the top, and the back. And I leave the front uninsulated. So I had a pretty good shot there where you could see that there were two, uh, two of the nukes they were sharing that same wall, the inner wall, trying to share heat. And that was pretty neat. We know they do that. That's why we put them together. But to see it on the FLIR image really just, uh, again, it was pretty neat. It confirmed what we already knew. Yeah, that was that was pretty neat and definitely demonstrated that that's what was going on. And looking at my new condo, my insulation was thicker than yours. And you could not see through the insulation to figure out where the bees were. But you could definitely see the entrances were hot um, from the camera picking up the heat. And you could tell that the hives were alive both by the entrance. And one of the other patterns that we picked up on a bunch of the hives that we shot, Bob, was that if there was an upper entrance with a hole or an opening, 
you could typically see the heat escaping out of the hole for ventilation. Yeah, the the other ones were the uh, the top bar hives. They really gave a nice uh, heat signature, and I guess because they're pretty thin, you can you can really see from one side or the other. You can really locate where they uh, where they are. I think one of the other things, and you pointed this out to me uh, last night, was sometimes it really depends how close you are to the hive in terms of what you see. So I had a shot where I had a Langstroth hive and a double nuke, and I put them together to try to keep the uh, nuke a little bit warmer. And when I shot it from far away, it was clear where the cluster was in the nuke, but the Langstroth looked completely cool. Then as I got closer and I really took a close-up of that Langstroth, it became pretty obvious where the uh, where the cluster was. But from farther away, you couldn't see that. So it makes sense to try to take different points of view and from different distances. Yeah, we noticed that um, the distance, it, it says in the instructions to get a certain amount away from the heat source to get the best read on it. But we also discovered that when it comes to bees, you don't know where they are. And you could walk all the way around the hive, which is an important, you know, my hives are on a single stand, so I can literally walk around them where some of them are on a bench. And you, you may or may not be able to discern where they are because you can't get to the side and pick up the heat signature. Um, so, yeah, it it's uh interesting you do have to walk all the way around the hive sometimes to see if you could figure out where the warm spot is to pick up where the bees are because you'll never know now you and i when we were at the farm we figured that they were always on the field side which faces the sun because they're going to try and get whatever sunshine they can so most of the time when we shot those hives they were always on the predominant side where the sun hits the hives yeah, what was interesting was the one I guess it was that it wasn't the all medium hive. It was one of your double uh, double langs. Was we looked all around and we couldn't really find it. And then we even probed it with the endoscope, and we didn't see anything. And we thought, well, this this thing is dead, right? So we popped the uh, the outer cover off, and sure enough, the bees were there. So I don't know whether it's just where the position they were in that they weren't transferring a lot of heat that the camera could pick up, uh, or whether the cluster was small. I don't know what it was, but sometimes you get these uh, false negatives where you think the hive is dead, and maybe it's not. So it's not always foolproof. Sometimes it's really, really obvious. Other times you kind of have to interpret what you're seeing and maybe use a couple of different tools to make your decision as whether it's alive or dead. Yeah, in the case of that hive, it looked like they were top dead center right underneath the middle of the roof, and you can't shoot down through the roof and the metal coverings, and we could not pick them up from around the sides. But when we undid the strap and lifted the, the roof, they were all right up underneath. Now, I guess they're pretty small, that's my guess, but... Uh, we won't know till it gets a little bit warmer. But um, the other thing, Bob, that that got picked up, and if you've ever looked at beekeeping images from FLIR shots that other people have posted, it becomes apparent 
how much heat loss goes out through the handle cutouts. Yeah, yeah. They really, on every picture, they glow. As a matter of fact, I went out again today, Kevin, and took a few more shots, and I noticed it on, on all of my hives. It's funny, funny, I guess. It's peculiar how just that little bit that they take out to make the handholds, uh, you lose enough insulation that uh, that you lose more heat through the handholds than you do through the walls of the of the hive. But it really, as you said, it's really obvious. It was really obvious on your polystyrene hive. Yeah. That thing is so well insulated that those thin points, they really stand out. Yeah, and how about Jim Schmall's hives, right? We took shots of those, and they look great. So, you know, there were four hives sitting together, full double deep, double deep uh, Langstroths. The second hive was dead, and it was really obvious when shooting that that bench that he has but the other ones are monsters we were both just so envious of how good his hives are doing that one was was it's the biggest one i've seen i've shot what maybe we've looked at probably 20 hives now or 25 and uh jim's that one that's the biggest cluster i've seen it went across a couple of boxes yeah so the other thing, there's a couple of other things, Kevin, and this is one that you pointed out to me, and I noticed this the first day I went out to shoot. I think you went out on Christmas Day, and if we remember, Christmas Day was pretty warm. I think we were in the 50s, mid-50s here. And uh, you go out in the middle of the day when the sun's been shining on the hive, and you go to take a shot, and you're not going to see, <laughs> you're not going to see anything because it's all warm because of yeah. the sun. So uh, I know you went out. You went out at, at night, didn't you, to, to shoot him that day? Yeah, I went out uh, the, the 26th or 27th and shot him in the dark, and it was cold. And when you look at the one, you could see it like a fireflight in the middle of the night. I mean, the, the, where the cluster was just glue, glowed uh, really strong on that hive. Yeah, well, speaking of glowing, the other great shot that you took, was the one when the bees were flying and you come out and they, they look like uh, fireflies because obviously they're very warm and it's cold outside. So when they come out, you just got this pattern of, uh, of fireflies, hot bees. Yeah, that's a neat shot. I think I posted a FLIR follow-up on the, on my website and that shot is there if you wanted to see it. I have mumble mouth tonight. Can you tell? <laughs> yeah so just finishing the topic up um, I'm not sure if I remember talking about this when we did the follow up but one of the things we discussed was the FLIR watermark and if you use FLIR tools you can get rid of it we also explored different software products that you could use instead of FLIR 1 which is the software that comes with the camera itself and it looks like there's more options for us to explore there. Yeah, especially uh, for the Android, I, I was able to find um, a couple of different things. One, I think, is called Thermal Camera, uh, which is a free app, and it, it does pretty well. And then they have a uh, professional Thermal uh, Camera Plus that you pay 99 cents for. And I, the only difference that I could see over the Flare, Flare 1 software was that the image quality was just a hair better. Um, but overall, the image quality is not great. Would you agree with that? 
I agree, especially if you're taking it in low light situations. It just looks grainy and blurry, and when you look at a hive, you can hardly make out its shape. Yeah. The other thing that's nice, though, is they do offer the free uh, tools called FLIR tools. So you can take your pictures and then you can manipulate them. You can show them in different palettes. You can show different views of them. You can show, well, we know the camera takes two photos, right? It takes a, a regular picture and then it takes the thermal image. So you can kind of blend the two with this tool. So anyway, that's kind of nice and it's free. Yeah. And, you know, you and I, we took other pictures with it, of course, but um, we tried to go over to that one area where I know there's a there's a, a colony of bees in a porch post, and we were going to go try and get it out in the spring. We took the camera there and tried to film any hot spots we could find, and we went up and down the actual post, which is probably about six foot tall, and into the soffit above it and we could not locate the bees so i'm not sure if they're dead or we just couldn't penetrate into it but i'm curious to find out in the spring if there are really bees in there or not yeah uh, since you mentioned that it's going to be interesting tomorrow i'm going there's a uh, feral colony that's in a barn up in asbury that uh, we we found actually uh, annalise is the one who showed it to me and uh, we talked to the farmer about coming and getting it last year, but it was late in the year, so we decided it wasn't really the right time to do it. But we're going up there tomorrow, and we're going to take the FLIR and see if we can't see just exactly where this colony is and how big it is. So uh, that'll be fun. And then, of course, when we decide to actually do the cutout, if they're still there, that'd be a great time to be able to confirm by using the endoscope, the boroscope, drilling a little hole in putting it up there and locating exactly where the the uh, cluster is and where the bees are so you're not tearing uh, apart more than you need to. And I was thinking uh, it would be a neat idea in the springtime when we get a swarm to take a FLIR image of it hanging off a tree. And somebody in our audience last night had photos of swarms that they took with their FLIR camera. They had one. Yeah, that would be pretty cool. So, Bob, I don't know about uh, Android, but in iOS, there's a couple other FLIR software products out there. FLIR Cloud, FLIR One Paint. There's something called FX. So I think there's a couple more things to explore and to get more utility. And I uh, should also mention that Rick had his Seek, S-E-E-K camera. And uh, the difference is it's about what he said, half the price, but it has... A thermal camera and it uses the regular camera the secondary camera from your phone and his images looked a little grainier but it was still pretty suitable and uh it, it's a cheaper alternative to these FLIR cameras yeah that that was interesting i uh i wonder how they did that where they could use the phone camera to get the uh the regular shot but i guess you can do just about anything these days yeah, so let's wrap this up, but let's talk real quick about the endoscopes. We took our endoscopes, and one of the things we were able to achieve is use that light aluminum wire that I had 
and uh, couple that with the original wire and get the right stiffness so that we could adjust the cameras to put them in and move them around without having them flop all over the place. Yeah, when you know, we, we talked about this last night also, is the camera is, what, nine millimeters uh, wide and really hard to get it up between the frames um, because of the B space. It's just barely... It's not even big enough, really, to be able to accommodate the uh, the camera. But what I was able to do today, Kevin, I meant to tell you this, and I really should have shot some video, is I went in through the upper entrance, and I was able to go down between the frames um, in one of the hives, and I went down far enough that I saw a small cluster of dead bees. This was wow. one of the hives that, that got robbed out late in the year and I suspect is dead. So I was able to get down. Of course, I wasn't too worried about breaking comb and you know, disturbing the bees because I thought this hive was dead anyway. But uh, I did get down in between. I couldn't get all the way to the bottom box, but I, I got a little bit further down. So that wire really makes a big difference. When I first tried it, I was using some 12 gauge uh, copper wire and it was it was stiff, but just not stiff enough. Well, and that has the perfect amount of bend to it that you can make any shape you want. And I think, like you said, if we practice more with it, we'll we'll get better. You know, somebody made a comment to me during the break last night is, how many frames do you run in your hive? And if you run nine frames, you have the opportunity for the extra space to get up and come around. So I, I thought that was an interesting observation. And I do have nine frames in some of my hives. Yeah. Again, I think it depends on uh, how they build the comb. There might be instances where you, you could get up there in between. But what we found, the, the main benefit to it is you're putting <clears throat> your endoscope into the hive, and it's dark inside. So as soon as you turn that light on, if there are bees in there, they're going to be drawn to that light. And that's yeah. really all you need to know is, are there live bees in there or are they dead? So if you're in there poking around for four or five minutes and you don't see any live bees, uh, you can pretty much decide that that hive is not alive because, you know, they're in total darkness and you come in with this LED light and shine it on them. They're going to come right to it. As a matter of fact, some of those videos were, were pretty funny, weren't they? Where yeah. you put the endoscope in and the next thing you know, it's being swarmed by bees. Look like a horror yeah, we'll film. give that away because I think I want to put that up on our YouTube channel and <laughs> let people be surprised by that fifth shot of the video. But, uh, you know, though, Bob, we did put the endoscope in that one we were talking about where the bees were top dead center. And yeah. we probed in and out trying to see if we can get up between the frames. And with the light on, even though we couldn't get up there, no bees got drawn down to it. So... In yeah, that case, right. both the FLIR and the endo did not help us. We couldn't get them to match. Yeah. Well, we we talked about this also. What's really funny is we went out, and we're gadget guys. We talked about this, so we, we love these gadgets. Um, but the weather has been so warm this winter that the bees have been flying, you know, every week, at least one day every week. So, you know, you don't need all of these tools to decide if your hive is alive. All you have to do is go out there when it's 45, 50 degrees and see if they're flying and see if they're dragging the dead out and you've got dead bees on the porch. Yeah, 
we were discussing whether or not, uh, because I can't see from the insulation, those nukes were alive. And what I was doing is watching the bees come out of the left hive, go out and go into those four hives to rob it. So sometimes you just stand there and watch the activity and you can kind of discern what was going on. And you wanted me to remind you about that waxy substance. Oh, yeah. So I don't, and I don't know where I read this, Kevin. I did take a picture. I'm going to have to send it to you. Um, but somewhere I was reading an article and they said, when your hive is being robbed out, you'll see a distinctive pattern of like footprints. Um, and what it is, is it's wax. It's not propolis. Okay. So around the upper entrance of two of my hives that have been robbed out, there's the bees are in and out and they're just chomping everything up and it actually stains around the upper entrance and there's a distinctive pattern i took a picture of it i saw it on the one hive and then i noticed the activity on the second hive and i wasn't sure whether it was really robbing or not you know sometimes it's hard to tell especially in the cold weather um but after a day or two i saw that distinctive footprints the wax footprints, and uh, sure enough, that hive has been robbed out and it's dead. So I'm going to have to find out where I found that uh, and send it to you. Maybe we can put it up for folks, but that was interesting. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what you're talking about because I want to go see if I can find it on my own hives. Yeah, hopefully not, Kevin. Well, sooner or later, you you end up finding it. So it's a good observation thing to tell others, too, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, robbing, when you have robbing in the summer, especially during the dearth, and they're all out attacking your hive, I mean, you know it, right? But in the winter, when you're out there and you're trying to decide whether they're just going out flying to, uh, you know, take a cleansing flight or whether they're out, whatever... It's, sometimes it's hard to tell. Like, this robbing was not frantic that I saw, but I could tell by the way the bees were approaching the hive that it wasn't just, you know, in and out, I'm returning because I went out for a cleansing flight. So it, it's kind of subtle in the winter, and if you can get a visual cue like this, you know, it helps to kind of put two and two together and figure out what's going on. Yeah. Okay, I wanted to uh, move on to our next topic. This is just a a plead to the listeners to go check something out. There's a website called Area 51. Bob, I, I think I showed this to you. You've never seen it before. It's like a frequently asked questions website with experts that will take any question you want. Similar to Reddit, where they say, ask a question. But in this case, it's topic-based. I thought it was really interesting. I'd never seen anything like this, uh, Kevin, and I don't, I don't know how you found it, but uh, it looks like they're just trying to get it off the ground. So they, they were asking for questions, and they were asking for people to sign up to make sure there was enough interest. I'm curious as to how they're going to pick their expert panels, um, especially in beekeeping. That what's it, what interests me, um, but it's a great idea. I was reading some of the questions, and they're the typical questions when it, in terms of beekeeping that all beginners ask. 
Yeah. And even advanced questions, we all ask these questions. So let me give the address for this. It's Area 51. 51 is the number. A-R-E-A-5-1 dot stackexchange.com. And when you get to this, just search for beekeeping. The uh, It was one of the members last night that came up to me during the break, gave me a little piece of paper with this, and they've been trying to promote it and asked if we would do our best to let people know about it. So the way this works, I guess, is it's upvoted. If they have enough followers and they have enough submission of questions, then it becomes something that is permanent. And beekeeping is under evaluation. So this is the plead. If you can, go there, take a look at it. And if you like it, follow it, ask a couple questions. And if they see enough interest, then this is a resource that will stay around. And Bob, I had talked about... um, you know, when we go to meetings, one of the things we should do is just keep writing down the questions we're getting and then provide a FAQ on our website and say to people, these are the questions that your peers have asked and this is the answers that we've put together. Well, this is the perfect forum for that, right? It's that, but on a huge crowdsourcing uh, thing. And eventually they should be able to find all the questions somebody could possibly want. Yeah, I would think so. Kind of like like B source, but this this seems a lot simpler. B source without the trolls. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not yet, anyway. <laughs> not yet. Well, hopefully, it'll be moderated, and they'll just take productive questions and not the philosophical rants and other things that occur. Yeah. Well, we we talked about this. Is uh, people always love Q and A, right? We, we never seem to have enough time for it at our meetings. You know, we talk about different topics and we talk about honey tasting and we look at the calendar, what should we be doing? Um, but what people really want or what a lot of people want, especially the newbies, but even, even some of the more experienced beekeepers is they want answers to their questions. And as we know in beekeeping, there is, you know, a lot of different answers to the same question. And I think a lot of people want to hear the options. So uh, we need to do more of that. We did a little bit more of it yes, uh, last night at the meeting. But we got a lot of talent there. We've got some, a lot of really experienced beekeepers. So, so why not? And if this is what folks want and this is what they need, then uh, I'm all for it. So anyway, this site was interesting. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. I think I'm, I'm going to follow it. I have signed up already. <laughs> So I gave my email address. Yeah, I'm going to follow it too. And uh, I'll check in. I always like to know, you know, maybe we can go in and pick some of the questions out of there and bring them back as features to the website of what people are talking about. Yeah. You know, people want, to to your point, people want a mentor. They want somebody who can look over the shoulder while they're standing in a hive. And if you can't get that, at least you'd love to have the opportunity to ask somebody a question until you're satisfied with the answer. And it's really hard to find that anywhere. So creating a community where people can have a dialogue until you get the answer you want is, uh, it's an important resource to beekeeping. Yeah. So we see where, uh, I said for all episodes, I was going to keep them to an hour. We're not going to do that here because you and I are just going to talk through these topics until we get, 
till we're done. But we probably should start closing things down a little, given that the hour is up. Um, I, I wanted to mention a new feature that I want to do for the podcast, just for fun, to the listeners. Um, if you go to the homepage of our website, on the bottom right-hand corner, it's bkcorner.org, you'll see an indicator map that shows people who have been visiting the website to come and get information from the different episode show notes. I, Because it's buried down there and I have 8,000 things to do, I don't look at it very much. But, Bob, if you look at it, I'm always surprised how many people are coming through and where they're coming from. They're from all over the place. Yeah, you're uh, <clears throat> you're becoming quite a star, Kevin. Yeah. You know, that's one of the beauties of the internet, though, isn't it? You know, you put something out there, and you've got followers from all all over the world—New Zealand, Australia, UK, all over the U.S. Right? People that people that do things uh, differently than we do them, so you can always learn. Uh, I always like how. New Zealand and Australia, they're in the opposite seasons from us. So here we're complaining about the winter and we can't right. wait until the spring. And they're in the middle of the summer and they're getting ready to go put their bees to bed. So, uh, but yeah, you have, uh, uh, quite a, quite a reach with this, uh, with this podcast. So it's pretty cool. So I thought there would be a neat thing to do here, which is look at the map and pick some obscure location and see if we can figure out who that person is that's uh, paying attention, right? So according to the map, there's a listener from Sunbright, Tennessee, population 547, according to the census from 2014. So here's the challenge. Let's see if we could say hello to Sunbright, Tennessee. If you're from that hometown, the first one to write in, because there might be more, to me at Kevin at BK Corner and say hello. I will give you a shout out and uh, let me know how long you've been listening and anything else you want to share. And if you send me in something, I'll look to see if I could send something back to say hi for saying hello. And periodically, I'll I'll pick a place uh, based on that map and see if we can get a glimpse of who's out there listening. So Sunbright, Tennessee, this is your challenge. Write in and say hello. It'd be really interesting to know. Is, is it a backyard beekeeper? Is it a sideliner? Um, what what kind of beekeeping do they do? Uh, yeah, it's, it'd be interesting. So please call in. Yeah, and if they call in by next episode and they want to say something, we'll pass it on. That'll be neat. Sunbright, Tennessee. There was one other thing I wanted to throw in here as a final bonus is... Uh, Last night there was a mention about neem oil, and, and I didn't want to forget to mention this for Varroa mite management. You know anything about that? Yeah, so this was uh, was Annalise who uh, brought this up. Uh, her grandfather and actually her mother uh, run a business. It's called Tick Tackler, and what they do is they use neem oil to, uh, to kill ticks what it does is it interferes with their uh, metamorphosis somewhere in between you know larva and pupa and pupa and adult it just stops that process it's a natural product i believe it comes from a tree i don't know exactly where and uh, they use it for tick control 
So she mentioned it last night, and her father, grandfather, talked a little bit about it. Yeah. She's mentioned it to me before, Kevin, and I actually did a little bit of an internet search on it. And what I could find is that I think it is, again, very limited studies, right? But there are some studies that suggest that it might be effective against Varroa mites. Um, but the other thing I saw was they think that it might have an effect on the longevity of the bees. So there may be some side effects. It may not be as, uh, as innocent in terms of uh, how it affects the bees as we would like it to be. So curious, I don't know, put it in your hive. Again, I'm not sure, but it is relatively non-toxic. I know actually um, they've done my yard with this neem oil, so it's safe for the bees. You don't want, really want to spray it directly on the bees, um, but I'd be curious if it does have a use as a varroa control. So something new, do a little more searching on the internet for it. There's not really a lot out there from what I saw. Yeah, when I came home last night from the meeting, I checked in, and there are some things out there for uh, B-Source. And mm -hmm. there are, to your point, uh, things out there for B-Safe pesticides. And neem oil, which is a fungicide, insecticide, is honeybee safe. You know, we always have these squeamish things about whether or not, um, just because they're B-Safe, in combination with other things, maybe they're not, to, to your point, right? That always makes me yeah. a little query, queasy. Wow, I cannot talk tonight. <laughs> well, um, again, so if you think about the mechanism of action, right, it interferes with metamorphosis. Right. Well, that's the bees, right? The bees go from egg, from larva to pupa to adult. So they undergo the same metamorphosis that we're talking about the neem oil interfering with. So, you know, it kind of raises a red flag, but we'll see. As always with any of these oils, right? Who the heck knows? I, I was also, yeah. not that I want to venture into the topic, but I found something, a study that talks about glyphosate and the fact that it is detrimental to bees. It's typically referred to, and I have said, that to my knowledge it wasn't, but I always had my doubts. Well, I found something that I'll bring back to a future episode that indicates that it does have an impact to the bees and it has something to do with affecting their ability to, um, their appetites, if I remember correctly. So that one's uh, very new on the pile and I'm going to go dig into that. Hmm. Yeah, I'd like to see that. Yeah, I'll shoot it over, and you can help me interpret that and uh, figure out what we, we should be saying about that to folks. Mm. All right, so let's close this down, Bob. We have a couple other things to cover here. First thing I have to say for me personally is that I've seen a couple donations coming in from the PayPal lately. I just always want to acknowledge this and say thank you. Uh, Bob, we had a couple new pieces of equipment to try and capture some uh, video and audio and um, it always helps to defray. It never catches up to it, but uh, at least it eases some of the pain when people donate. Yeah, people are incredibly generous, aren't they? I mean, I look at these GoFundMe sites and the Indiegogo sites, and uh, pe people have big hearts. So, uh, yeah, I say thank you also. It seems this is the time of the year where you can go out on the tour for beekeeping meetings, and I always... Uh, plan my weekends in February to have that opportunity. We had the meeting I mentioned in Chester 
which is the Chester County Beekeepers, Westchester University, just south of Philadelphia, Saturday, March 11th. They have a good lineup there. Dewey, Karen, Phil Kraft from Bee Culture, Megan Milbraith. I think that's how you say her name. And our own New Jersey, Landy Simone, will be there. Um, Bob, last year you and I went to the Natural Beekeeping Symposium at Temple University. And if you're free, I'm planning to do that. It's Saturday, February 4th, which is next weekend. Yeah? Yeah. You know, the Philadelphia Beekeepers Guild, they run a really good program. We've been down there a couple of times. So uh, if you're game, I'm game. I'm game. I haven't talked to Sharon about that, but <laughs> <laughs> I set the March 11th one up, but I'll have to break the news to her that next Saturday we'll be heading out of town. <laughs> uh, you and I have been been uh, helping Jim Schmalls. We're building the bee cage. We got the floor done. We got a couple walls done. Uh, making some progress on that. Yeah, that's really looking good. So listen, um, We've been at this for more than an hour, so I guess it should be wrapped down. I want to say thanks. It's been a long time. You and I uh, stay in constant contact and uh, have a lot of stuff going on. We're going to go present the Gadget Garage pretty soon at at Raron Valley. Yeah, I meant to remind you that. That's coming up uh, second week in February, I think. Yeah, when I started to, uh, for anybody paying attention, sometimes people get referred to the Northwest Beekeepers Association website, which we both belong to in our past presidents. Uh, I've spent the holiday break redoing the website and just launched the new version of it. Um, you could go take a look at that, but if you look at the calendar, it shows things that we're doing other than our monthly meetings and in the outreach we do have listed and that's where I remembered, Bob, that you and I are going February 16th, Gadget Garage on the Road. Always fun. I was uh, embarrassed to say that I spelled our new president's name wrong, not once, not twice, but three times on our <laughs> homepage, and I fixed that today. <laughs> that was really bad. I didn't mention that one to you, Kevin, but I saw it. <laughs> yeah. But other than that, uh, the site looks good. It's a lot easier to maintain, which was one of the more important things to take care of. And uh, very excited to get that up and out of the. Yeah, well, my the, two cents, my two cents, Kevin. I've uh, I've played around with it. First of all, it looks great, but uh, from what I see, everything's working too. So that's always a concern that the links are are correct. So looks like you did a good job. I have a number of features like honey locator and people who want to uh, request bees for their property and things like that to put in the site, which was too difficult to maintain. But with the new technology we're using here, it's called Moby Rise. Um, I think that should be a little easier to get a handle on. Yeah, well, you showed me showed it to me uh, when I was over uh, last week, and it looks like something that anybody could learn. Uh, even if you're not an IT guy, per se, that with a little bit of practice, you could learn how to how to use it. So hopefully to make your life a little bit easier. Let's hope so. Well, again, Bob, I really appreciate you coming and joining me. Uh, this was fly, uh, fly of the moment. What do they call it? <laughs> Spur of the moment. <laughs> you know, we just talking like, hey, what are you doing tomorrow? Yeah, let's go chew the fat. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, there my pleasure. I always All enjoy right. it, Kevin. You're always welcome back, Bob. I appreciate it. So with that, I guess it's time to close it up. If you have any questions, comments, uh, thoughts, any interesting beekeeping topics you want to send along, we're always happy to hear from you. Kevin at bkcorner.org. Have any comments from Bob, I'll pass them along to him too. And as we always do, I'll end with, like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everyone, and be well.